Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from the top industry leaders to startups and farmers that make it all possible with Chef Jean Blum and photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. And I am so honored to be able to bring David Dietz, who is the owner of BBC Tavern and Grill, onto Food Farms and Chefs. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you for having me. No problem. So I did a little bit of background check on you. And I I know that you guys are currently located in a space that you kind of like swapped out. But um, before we get into like the space and where you're located, what is your history in the culinary industry? Started out as a teenager working in a sub shop cooking you know, cheesesteaks and making subs to becoming a busboy and a host and a server during college. And then got into the after right after college, got into Subway sandwiches with a partner. And that led to uh, developing not only Subway sandwiches, but then also then Boston chicken. Oh, wow. And we did those uh, in the state of Delaware until the company went public four years after we started that. And then I went and opened up uh, just at about the same time that Dogfish Head Brewing opened in the state of Delaware, we had to change the law to uh, allow brewing in the state. And we opened the first uh, microbrewery restaurant in Delaware. Oh, wow. And so- there I've done other restaurants uh, in a college town near here, Newark, Delaware, uh, down at a resort town called Rehoboth Beach in lower Delaware. And now I have BBC Tavern and Grill here in Greenville, Delaware, and a, a neighboring restaurant that we just opened in June called Bar Reverie. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, obviously, we're going to have to delve into that one as well. But yeah, I mean, obviously, your your claim to to the restaurant industry, the culinary industry is a whole gamut because you really because you built yourself up. You went from like the ground ground up to like owning franchises it sounds like um is what i'm i'm ascertaining to to opening to changing laws like what was that like having to let go to legislation and and kind of you know tweak the laws so that you could open up the brew pub it was it was an adventure and had i known how involved it was going to be at the time before setting out i might not have done it but it was a lot of fun uh, actually because uh when I had the idea to do the brew pub, this is in 1994. Um, there was nothing like it around here. So when I was able to go to, found out uh, that there were some legislators that were home brewers. So okay. once I had the legislators uh, in our state Senate and our state house on board, they pretty much ran the bill for me. And uh, we got the bill passed to allow brewing in restaurants in Delaware in 1994 and then opened in 1995. Yeah, because uh, you initially, I think, opened with under a like Brandywine Brewing uh, Company. Brandywine, Brandywine Brewing Company, restaurant and brewery. And yeah. I was there, did that for 10 years. I had a landlord that wanted my space when my lease was up. So he actually bought the restaurant from me uh, to use the space to combine it with some other spaces to put in an upscale boutique uh, grocery store. So then I did another restaurant in got into the restaurant equipment business, actually got into the insurance business. And then I was approached by my current landlord uh, that said, you know, I loved you when you were next door up the road a mile and we have a space available. Would you like to do it? And so I got back into this business and that was in 2009. Oh, wow. So, I mean, 
given the, okay because i know the when you reestablish yourself you had to sell off the the brewery part of it and that yeah. kind of got shipped off to canada i, I yes. mean when we say shipped do you mean literally shipped like all the equipment yeah absolutely why taking in uh, the landlord didn't want the brewing equipment so I had a friend of mine that worked at a local brewery. Uh, we rented a forklift and we had an 18 wheeler truck pull up and we disassembled the brewery and put it on a truck and I put it in storage thinking I might reopen somewhere. And uh, when this space here was not large enough to handle a brewery and a restaurant. So found it, put it listed, I think on Craigslist and the guy sent an 18 wheeler and we rented the forklift again and put the brewery on the truck and strapped it down and off it went. Oh, Wow. So was it a sad day to see that go or, you know, are you going to, would you ever consider starting a brewery again? Um, I get that question a lot. It's, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It it was awesome, but it's a lot easier now without having to do my own. I get a lot of marketing assistance and so forth from the big brewers and the liquor companies and the wine companies and so forth. So it was a good 10 year stretch of my life really enjoyed it but i don't see myself getting back into it okay i was just curious yeah um mm -hmm. and now i want to delve a little bit into like the menu and the fact that you guys offer specials and then we'll switch to bar reverie too because i want to make sure that that gets plugged as well but um i i saw that you offer the you know a, a nice selection it's not like a, a huge menu so it's very approachable with you know what you guys offer but it's good it's really good food thank you very much and that's really a testament to the staff and my chef uh not me so much they're, they're the ones that do all the hard work that <clears throat> you know make the sauces and prep the food and make it look nice and you know it's also the bartenders and the servers and it's everybody and you know, we've been very successful now for 14 years in this location, but it's a testament to the staff. Of course. Um, and I saw that you, you know, you also offer like brunch and, you know, weekday specials and, and whatnot. So, you know, walk us through some of your more popular items and, you know, that that people order and, and some of the specials that you might be running because it's new. It's fall. So I feel like the specials might be changing. Yeah, absolutely. We we. Definitely have a seasonal menu that we change it generally plus or minus April 15th and then plus or minus October 15th. Um, whereas next door at Bar Reverie, it's more upscale. And so that changes quarterly. Mm. Um, but here at BBC Tavern, it's more casual. We do, a, as you mentioned, we do a very busy Saturday and Sunday brunch. I think this uh, yesterday, Sunday brunch, we did about 240 covers and we seat 130 people. Oh, so wow. We're, we're busy. Absolutely. Yeah, busy. I, would, I would say you're definitely busy now. Since I didn't, I actually um, didn't see the connection with the bar rubbery. Uh, what was that like opening that up and how, when did you open? Uh, we just opened bar rubbery in the middle of June this year. So we're still brand new. Um, we're calling the concept. The, the menu is travel inspired with a nod to the French. Oh, but nice. By travel. Yeah. But by travel, we mean literally around the world travel, around the United States, Europe, around the world. Um, we have a wonderful chef. Uh, the, the, uh, we just hired a, a new chef, and uh, he started today. He comes from a place called the Union League in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. Very upscale, wonderful food, and he was there for 10 years. And he just started uh, today. We had a French chef and her husband in from Paris, uh, and uh, they are heading back to Paris. They tried it here in little Delaware for about 90 days, but it was tough with the culture and the kids and so forth. So we 
parted as friends, but That's- yeah, looking forward to this next chapter. And I'm excited for you because I know every time you bring on a new chef, the chef is going to kind of tweak the menu and make it their own. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that you're giving that leniency because, you know, you're it's a new it's a new baby that you're growing, basically. But um, what is the difference between, you know, I mean, aside from it being a very like global menu, um. What would the difference be as far as an experience, like when you walk into your new Bar Reverie? So Bar Reverie is a lot more upscale. Uh, you can get dressed up to come in there. We do white tablecloths and candles on the tables at night. We have an extensive wine list that uh, excuse French. Uh, I think we have over close to 100 uh, wines by the bottle, by the glass. We have a 24-tap Cruvenet system. Uh, where we have six whites that are served at 48 degrees and 18 reds served at 63 degrees. Um, a beautiful wine display cabinet uh, in the dining room holds 358 bottles at 63 degrees. So we're very serious about the wine program and the drinks program. And uh, the decor and the design, we get lots of really positive feedback. That's by our creative director, Lauren Gold from Social Stylate. She does a wonderful job. Uh, we spend a disproportionate amount of money in the bathrooms because after doing this business for 30 years, I think I figured out that there's about five things that people care about in the restaurant business. And it's the temperature, the lighting, the music, the bathrooms, of course, and the French fries. And if you can nail those five things, you're going to have a successful business. <laughs> and the French fries. I actually Absolutely. know. More, yeah. <laughs> more comments about the French fries. It's just unbelievable. Some like them, the big, thick steak fries. Some people like the wedges. Some people want the curly fries. And that's I like funny. the thin ones. I like the thin ones myself. I mean, I, I have I have to agree on, on a couple of the fronts there. Because when you go to a restaurant and you're trying to read the menu and you can't because it's so dimly lit and you have to pull out a light and be that obnoxious person. And I always have a light because I'm a photographer. I'm going to have some sort of extra lighting. Um, <laughs> but like when you can't read the menu, it's it's very irritating as a customer or a guest. Um and I have a fellow photographer that I know and all every restaurant he goes to, he will take a selfie in the bathroom. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. I think something I learned uh, from the creative director, Lauren, was uh, when she was pitching me the idea of doing this. And we were talking about, you know, we got to make sure that these bathrooms are top notch. And she said that uh, women are Instagram themselves in bathrooms more than the food <laughs> on social media. Which well, it's, so we got yeah. a lot of comments on our back. Oh, that's really funny. But mm-hmm. let's circle back to the food because I am a photographer sure. and my my epicenter is food, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take a lot of photos of food and I'm well known for for it. So I love to highlight, you know, menus, especially if it's a beautiful dish that comes out and has an, you know, a variety of colors, or you can see like like for chicken wings, chicken wings are always a very photographical or um, picture worthy um, I, menu item because it has it has like that glistening sheen from like the sauce. And, you know, it's usually red or, you know, built up where it's stacked. Like what's what are some of the menu items 
because obviously chicken wings is more of a like Americanized, like let's watch the game um, and something that you would have at BBC. But what what are some of the menu items to look forward to at Bar Reverie? So we just had the chef uh, start. Actually, today's his first day uh, on the line. And uh, he was in yesterday his, before his first day to rearrange the walk into his liking and move some items around. <laughs> so uh, so I'm looking forward to his food. But, uh, you know, we always have a, a special pasta dish. Uh, we always have uh, right now a, a, a beautifully presented halibut. Mm. With yeah, um, we actually spent a lot of time in designing the restaurant, looking at truly hundreds and hundreds of plates and glassware and silverware to make it um, all kind of look like it was intentional and thought put together. And so we have some beautiful plates that the food really stands out on, and uh, that's something that every chef that we were interviewing for this new round here did compliment. That they were like, "Wow, this is some beautiful flatware, beautiful plates." Um, so to answer your question, uh, some of our desserts by our pastry chef, Gretchen Siani, she makes some absolutely beautiful desserts that I was looking at this morning that she was plating and showing the chef. This is what the desserts are going to be, uh, this week and so forth. So everything, but you're right. I have heard from the photographers that take pictures of our food for the social marketing, that food is a very difficult item to take pictures of. Correct. It can be difficult depending on what the item is, um, mm -hmm. but some photograph much better than others. Like the desserts, you know, especially if it's like a, a good um, pastry that's stacked where it's layered of like cream and then a layer of like cake or, or you know, something to that matter. And then cream, fruit and having that built up like desserts are easy because people are like, oh, that looks delicious. Um, <laughs> but uh, but as far as food items are concerned, like there's certain soups you can take pictures of that will pop things that you can do to it. Um, but, you know, just making that look appetizing, because no matter what, whether you're a photographer or a guest, like you're going to look at that plate and eat first with your eyes. And that's going to look so appetizing or like, <laughs> um, and more than likely you're going to plate up food. That's going to be super appetizing because uh, you, you're trying to bring people in and that's the only way to do it is to like entice them in some way. Um, well, Cause I'll see the photographers. Sometimes she's up on a ladder, you know, yep. above or moving the later around. And then sometimes she's down below or sometimes right at it. Sometimes zooming out. Sometimes they need like a fork, you know, in a hand going into the frame sometimes it's just the food by itself so it's it's a skill set that i don't have and it looks very challenging to do it yes it is um it can be very very challenging and if you and i a lot of times i do things just on my own i i go place a stag um i'll and and i don't have somebody who's a who's there for me to direct and i'll grab whoever seems interested in what i'm doing i have no shame <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, and I don't want to focus on like what I do because obviously we're here to highlight yourself and your businesses. So, um, because in the last couple of minutes that we have left with you, you know, I want you to be able to brag about some of your plates or about your specials, you know, entice our, our listeners to, to come in and visit you. Okay. So with BBC Tavern, we're, we're a casual place. We have nine TVs, 20 seats at the bar two, three different dining rooms, a great big covered uh, patio that seats about 50 people. Um, and then we're kind of the locals pub here. Um, so lots and lots of regulars. And it's the favorites 
um, our, our nachos, our Jam Joe's nachos. We make our own nachos here. They're gigantic. People's eyes always bolt out when they see it, the new people. Um, we have a corn and crab chowder where the Philadelphia Inquirer called. They wanted the recipe, and the chef said no, so you've got to come here to get our really authentic crab and corn chowder that we have year-round. We're known for our, our wings. I think we, yeah, in the last couple of years, we've won best wings in the state. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. We take them very seriously. Um, we're known just like for our burgers, a great big salad, a big salmon salad and a cob salad and a taco salad. So, yeah. Do you still have the bison burger on your menu? We do. We do. That I, I want to come in and try. That has been on my bucket list. I've for all the years I've obviously been eating food. I've never actually experienced a bison burger. So maybe you could be like the person that puts it in front of me and I can take my first bite on camera. <laughs> I love the bison burger. It's a little, you know, it's a little gamier than a, a regular hamburger, but it's got great flavor. It's leaner than hamburger, mm. um, but it's good. Yeah, absolutely. And in the last minute or so that we have for you, why don't we go over the fact that you have, because um, you're also known for your like nice, warm, comfort, you know, pillowy pretzels that that you offer, but you do offer one that's a dessert. Yes. So that's me actually at, at next door at Bar Reverie by Gretchen, the pastry chef. And <laughs> um, when we were, she was, we're getting ready to open a new place. And I said, hey, can you make some desserts for next door? She said, absolutely. And so where she'll have some fancier confections next door at Bar Reverie for here, you know, she knew that we sold those pretzels and what goes better with beer than a pretzel. So she put a twist on it. Now we have, you know, the sweet chocolate filled handmade pastry chef quality pretzels that uh, people just absolutely love. All right. Well, David, it was fun speaking with you. I am so excited for you and for Bar Reverie and for BBC to continue. So let our listeners know where to find you guys online. We are at, uh, www.barreverie that's r-e-v-e-r-i-e dot com and bbc tavern and grill all spelled out dot com all right thank you so much david thank you appreciate it no problem and we will be right back after this short break to become a sponsor of food farms and chefs and have your business or event promoted on two radio stations in philadelphia that play on tuesdays during drive time radio and on a station in new york on fridays at 1 p.m you can email us at foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com or arpolicus at gmail.com Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. I am very honored to have Amanda Newman, who is the owner and maker of Spotted Horse Provisions, on our show. Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So you have an interesting brand name, Spotted Horse Provisions. Is there a background to that or, you know, what's the how did you come about choosing Spotted Horse Provisions? Sure. No problem. I am a lifelong horse person um, and the business is named after my first horse, who was an Appaloosa. And for 15 years, from the time I was 21 to 36, I uh, had a small business called Spotted Horse Designs, where I sold my jewelry and my photography. And I shuttered it when I became a full-time professor. And I really missed the creative outlet of a small business. So when I re-envisioned taking my culinary passions, I decided to relaunch using the same uh, name as well as the same logo, which I drew. I drew that horse at uh, age 21. 
So oh, now wow. I'm, I'm about to turn 50. So it felt very uh, serendipitous that I had uh, had that history with that logo. Yeah. And I mean, it's I Appaloosas are so, so pretty, by the way. Um, the fact you. that you were able and they're high strong, like the fact that you were able to like manage uh, such a like uh, energetic and strong willed horse. Um <laughs> I give you a lot of credit too, but obviously you also have history on a farm. So um, it makes sense that some of the the goods that you have are obviously farm based. Uh, yeah. But uh, don't let me talk about it. I'm going to open up and ask you like, so what is sp Spotted Horse Provisions? Sure, absolutely. It's an opportunity to do a few things. One is to connect people with their foodways, whether it be from the farm or their culture or their heritage foodways. I grew up in a farming community in central New Jersey, which does exist. Central Jersey is a thing. From central Jersey, where we shopped right at the farms adjacent to where I grew up. And that is how we ate. And if you got something seasonal, you preserved it so that you could enjoy it year round. So that was something that I wanted to bring from my own upbringing uh, to, um, uh, to Spotted Horse. Uh, the second aspect of Spotted Horse was taking a very uh, somewhat the unexpected cultural uh, heritage blend that I, I uh, uh, come from, from my parentage, and use it to combine into really interesting and unique um, ingredients and pantry staples. So um, taking my Iraqi Sephardi heritage on one side and Welsh on the other, um, which both had, yes, yes, this, that, fa that face is the face <laughs> I often get at the booth. Um, For our and, listeners, and I made a face of like, oh, wow, that's a huge difference. <laughs> exactly. But letting people know a few things. One is it's okay to be you. You know, everyone is a very unique constellation of um, uh, backgrounds. And I feel like being able to celebrate that through food is something that we should all be given permission to. And I think sometimes we're, we're bound by culinary traditions of one culture or another. And being invited to combine them is, is an exciting space and creative space. Yeah, I mean, I saw that you on your uh, Instagram feed that you had had a sauce that was a tomato zatar sauce, and I was like, "Ooh, I want my, I want to taste that." Um, yeah. <laughs> so that makes so much more sense now. What, the, like, given that you just explained the background of it, um, mm -hmm. but how did you learn? Because I feel like canning and jarring and whatnot it takes a whole another art art form too. But I've I've read into it. I've I'm was interested in trying it. I have aunts and uncles who do it. Then I was like, mm -hmm. eh, that's a lot of effort. <laughs> so how did you actually get into that? Sure. Um, so I'm a fourth generation canner. Uh, my great grandmother um, was a jam maker and actually one of our anchor um, uh, uh, flavors of jam is a blueberry lavender jam. Um, that is the recipe is about 110 years old. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, and it goes back to only ever using the Jersey blueberry, the, the Jersey blue. So, um, I come from a tradition of canning and preservation, but my production manager and co-owner in the business, um, Simon, uh, also worked in a commissary kitchen where he did canning. And so he really assisted me in taking what were home canning, uh, processes and taking them to the commercial scale. So that was very, very um, instrumental in terms of the canning process. Mm -hmm. um, but for 
the challenges that um, canning presents for the home person, believe it or not, even on the commercial scale, there are significant challenges as well. So I joke in the kitchen that uh, jam making is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it really isn't. Because I mean, I've made like comp, like, because I don't know the process well enough and I don't want to get anybody sick, um, mm-hmm. it, friends and family, you know, because I wouldn't be doing this sure. as a like process for, from, you know, a larger scale. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, fall back on just, okay, I'll make a compote or something, you know, s- simple, mm-hmm. you know, which is easy. I'm sure you're well aware of how to, do, how to do that as well. But, um, you know, where you just macerate the fruit, sugar, or, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit of lemon kind of, you know, it's easy, um, for our listeners out there in case if you feel like doing it. Um, yeah. but like you also kind of giving a nod to the fact that you're doing canning, um, and, things are preserved within contained within themselves. I know mm-hmm. that gives a nod to your heart, which is sustainability. So yes. Yeah. Yes. That's the other sort of aspect of it is the overarching um, message of Spotted Horse is sustainable practices from procurement to production to packaging. Like we really emphasize all three things and we try to be mindful. We recognize that we cannot you know, guarantee that something's 100% sustainably procured. But we make intentional and mindful efforts every step of the way in the chain of sort of management of the produce that goes into or the fruit that goes into every jar um, so that we try to be as sustainable as possible. And it's also teaching individuals that um, canning is perhaps a little bit of a lost art form. I will say that uh, the pandemic as horrific and tragic as those times in our life was actually sort of created an uptick in the interest Mm. in canning uh, because people were home they wanted to preserve what they could get when they got it Um, so I feel like canning and showing um, how diverse canning can actually be in creating pantry staples staples that you can use every single day is um, very much a strong message for Spotted Horse. It's like you can take these things that you enjoy, that you get at the farmer's market, and with a few simple steps, turn them into something that you yourself have um, uh, preserved for future use in your own kitchen. Um, as much as I would love to say that I want to forever be your hookup for Harissa pickled carrots, I would love to also build in an educational component where I'm teaching um, how to preserve your foods. I think that's an, an important step and a very um, health oriented step too. There's great health benefits to, um, we use an apple cider vinegar brine and there's wonderful benefits to having apple cider vinegars and not, um, you know, no artificial preservatives in your, um, in your system. Yeah. And I just, I'm going to like sidebar for a second because sure. apple cider Apple cider vinegar is actually one of my favorite vinegars because I'll add it like when I'm making, you know, bone stock, um, I will Mm -hmm. add it. Obviously it's you, you're probably well aware as a a lifetime cook, but you add a little bit of apple cider vinegar to your, you know, while you're making that stock and it helps draw the, the bone marrow, which is so integral Mm -hmm. to, to actually creating that stock. Um, but you can also, it's so universal. You can use it to like, you know, put, add it into, um, 
water and use it as a cleaning product. Like I, mm-hmm. lo- and it has a much better smell. <laughs> yes. Than white distilled vinegar. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I always say, and it's funny, we talk about this a lot um, at our farmer's market booze, um, which is a few things. Apple cider vinegar, the use for us is very cultural in nature. Um, Sephardi cuisine is very often um, utilizes things like apple cider vinegar as compared to a white distilled vinegar. Also using apple cider vinegar, I call it the chef's secret because it's an extremely hidden ingredient that makes your food and flavors pop. Um, and our brine, which has our housemaid harissa, I call her hot mess harissa, hot mess harissa, because she's, <laughs> she's, she's, she's like me. She's a hot mess of a whole blend of a lot of things. Um, my hot my hot mess harissa blend that goes in the bottom can be reused as a brine uh, if you want to do your own pickling or I often recommend as a marinade for proteins, especially tougher proteins. Mm. That ACV will really do a nice job of tenderizing and breaking down um, uh, proteins. It's also great, you know, um, to utilize with your cooked vegetables as like a drizzle on top. So, yeah, yeah ACV is a great item and um, it's absolutely always and forever our um, brining brining choice of course and you know let's throw throw back to also uh, you know included in the fact that you're you're offering a delicious um jarred options for everybody to delve into and 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 taste and enjoy you are getting it at the freshest peak that you possibly can because you're very um hyper local when you choose your purveyors including one of our show friends um uh krista barfield Mm -hmm. who you know farmer john i saw that you you work well you work with her too so i was like that Yes, yes. We've had some wonderful partnerships and being able to um, celebrate um, local, like extremely hyper local produce has been very exciting for us and something that, again, given my own upbringing and experiences, what I wanted to bring here. Uh, we've been able to bring in produce from Krista, from, you know, Farmer John. Um, we uh, just recently picked up produce from Germantown Kitchen Garden um, with Amanda and also um, Urban Creators and Life to Go Farm with Elizabeth. So it's really nice that literally I can pick up 70 pounds of heirloom green tomatoes grown in North Philadelphia, get them right into the kitchen and turn them into our Frankenstein sauce so that those tomatoes um, have a life other than what it might yield to us fresh. It Obviously. Now, take us through some of, because obviously you mentioned the blueberry lavender jam um, and mm-hmm. the harissa uh, carrots, I think you said. And what are some of the other products that you offer? Sure, sure. Um, we essentially order uh, offer like about four product lines. One is a tomato-based sauces um, that features things like roasted tomato and za'atar. Uh, and Frankenstein sauce, which is a wonderful sauce made out of roasted green tomatoes and roasted tomatillos, roasted leeks, roasted garlic, pretty much everything roasted. Um, and then, so that's our tomato sauce. We have a tomato sauce line. We have a harissa pickled vegetable line. So we use my house-made hot mess harissa blend to pickle. And we do tap roots and nightshades. Again, very culturally derived. Um, in Safari cuisine, we use a lot of taproots and nightshades in our, in our recipes. So that's why, for example, I do those as compared to traditional pickles, like cucumbers. Mm. Um, uh, the, I have a jam and jelly line. Um, so in my jams, it's very much about celebrating seasonal fruit, but also using, um, natural elements like flowers and herbs to enhance those flavors to make the strawberry taste more strawberry or the blueberry taste more blueberry. 
um, rather than um, uh, just sort of doing a straight flavor. And then um, the fourth line I do is a zero waste pesto. And my zero waste pestos are derived of the fact that I had, and same thing growing up, I had magnificent tap roots that had edible tops. What do we do with the edible tops? We turn them into pesto. Um, I use a ton of fresh herbs in my sauces and pickled vegetables. Pick up pickled vegetables from us. You're going to see fresh dill, fresh cilantro in there. The stems of those herbs have incredible flavor and they mm-hmm. get ground up and used in our pestos. Which is, I saw on, again, you know, throwing back to your Instagram post, I saw mm-hmm. that you had had a list, a laundry list, basically, of different pestos that you make. And I was yeah. like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Nasturtium and cashew was the one we just released. People don't realize that, of course, you get those beautiful peppery orange flowers on your salads, but the leaves of the nasturtium plant, actually the entire nasturtium plant is edible, but we did a nasturtium and um, and a, a, a cashew. And there are challenges around using certain ingredients like cashews and understanding the issues Not within allergens. that industry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nut allergens, of course. Um but uh, yeah, we do like nasturtium and cashew. Um, I do ramp pistachio, um, fiddlehead walnut. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, lots of fun stuff. Do you ever utilize the um, the dandelion flower? Because I have to say, I I had that for the first time, and I was like, oh, I actually really like that. Um, yep. Just in general, I love edible flowers because like a lot of people will see it and they're afraid to like bite into it because it's a flower. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, why are you so nervous? It's you know, it, they wouldn't plate it if it wasn't edible. <laughs> yes, ex- exactly, exactly. Well, you should have seen when we did our wild violet jelly. Um, I made my grandmother's wild violet jelly, which is light lavender color. (laughs) Individuals were like, do I want to eat something that's light lavender? And I'm like, yes, because it's going to be we create what's called a charcuterie series within my jams and jellies. And they come in four ounce jars and they celebrate very um, specific flowers and liqueurs blended together. Um, But I'm like, try the wild violet on some creamy and salty cheese and you will no longer be afraid of purple foods. (laughs) (laughs) Now I want to try it. (laughs) Um, Just, you know, because I'm also not afraid to try anything. I feel like if you try something at least twice, actually, because if you try it the first time and you're not sure, try it a second time because, you know, there's nothing, it's not going to hurt you. (laughs) No, no, it's not. And, you know, it's really interesting. And I love telling sort of stories about what happens that um, I just on Saturday, I had someone come up to the booth and their um, little one was really wanting to try some of our peach jam, which I was thrilled to, you know, be able to give them uh, a little taste of that. And the mom said, oh, I don't like tomato sauce. Oh, I don't like tomato sauce at all. I've never liked any tomato sauces. And the the dad said, oh, well, actually, I'd like to try some. So I gave him some tomato basil. And he's like, oh, my God, this is great. He hands it to his wife and she tasted. She goes, oh, my God, like, I really like that. That really tastes like fresh tomatoes i don't like tomato sauce because it never tastes fresh yeah and i was like yep that's it the makes difference. a huge difference a huge difference um now we're having so much fun chit-chatting about you know you know no, 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 your your <laughs> business and your products that we're actually running out of time so before you know i have to let you go let our listeners sure. know where to find you and what farmers markets you know in the fall oh absolutely absolutely and we are so committed to our customers in our farmers markets we love them And I tell them all the time, I learn more from them than they learn from me in terms of recipes. My favorite thing 
is to have them come back, which I return customers is what I'm going for. And it's what we actually have built in only one year of business um, is they tell me how they used it. So you can find us on a biweekly basis at Pretzel Park in Maniunk. Um, and on alternative Saturdays, you can find us at the Germantown Farmers Market on Germantown Avenue, right in front of where the um, Historical Society is. Um, on Sundays, we have been doing uh, markets in Haddon Heights in South Jersey, and uh, we're just about to launch a new series in um, called the Elmer Market, which is a traveling market in South Jersey where there's about three or four regular pop-up locations. So if you follow the Elmer Market or follow spotted horse on instagram you'll be able to see where we um sell we also are about to launch into fda and pennsylvania department of agriculture licensing on many products so our goal is to get on the shelves of your local markets we're not looking we're looking again for small independent markets and we've had a lot approach us to carry our products so that's also our next sort of project for the winter all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs, Amanda. And I uh, will look for some of those products. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, truly. No problem. And we'll be right back after this really short break. Join us on Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from top industry leaders to startups and the farmers who make it all possible with co-host Jean Blum and Amaris Pollock with original episodes that debut every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WWDB 97.5 HD2 and at WWDBAM.com and on your smart speaker. Hi, and welcome back to Food Frums and Chefs. And I am super excited to be able to introduce Matthew and Janelle Boyd, who are the owners of Boyd Crew Winery. Welcome to the show. Thank Hello. you for having us. We sincerely appreciate it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so um, I've watched a couple of your interviews and I I know that you're well-versed in um, speaking in terminology that is is in of wine and winos. <laughs> like I love <laughs> wine, but I wouldn't say that I'm um, an aficionado. So um, I will leave it to you to utilize all of the technical terms um, as, as you want. But let our listeners know, like, how did you guys get started in this business? Yeah, so... I'll say, um, I don't know if we'll use all the terminology either because <laughs> we, we try to keep it, you know, pretty, um, you know, pretty laid back as, as it relates to talking about wine. Uh, we don't want to scare anybody off. <laughs> but um, how do we get started? So really, it, it goes back like 15 years ago um, when we first started talking about the idea of um, you know, having our own, our own winery, our own vineyard, actually. Um, and it was just through our love of wine, really just going to different wineries. Um, we've, you know, really visited a lot of wineries from, of course, here in the DC, Maryland, Virginia market where we, where we reside, but we also were traveling to, um, Napa and Sonoma. We've gone to Morocco most recently. Um, we've been up to the Finger Lakes area um, and just, you know, and just really enjoying exploring different wines. And, um, you know, it was a joke with some of our friends, like, you know, you guys are always at a, win at a winery. You should probably buy stock in winery you know, in wineries. Um, and so we we're like, hmm, instead we should, maybe, maybe we should just do it. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was also a, a huge community builder for us. It, it just seems like every time we would 
be at a vineyard, we would either go with friends and that would kind of become the centerpiece of our conversations, you know, being out there at the at the vineyards. Or we'd be celebrating a milestone, like we've celebrated um, graduations, birthdays, like, you know, you name it. Even when we had our, our kids, we, we've got two boys, we still found it very easy. It was actually one of the best, quote unquote, date nights for us, is that, or date days, I should say, is that we could go out to a vineyard and still have our kids with us, you know, yeah. and let them run around or let them, you know, play and still be relaxed um, instead of like as new parents, when you sometimes when you go out, you you feel a little tense because you're like, okay, I don't know if my kid's gonna be crying or acting up or like flailing around, you know. And it's like when you got a vineyard, nobody cares. Yeah, because <laughs> so, we're drinking wine. <laughs> well, that's part of it, right? And there's, <laughs> there's usually relaxed. exactly, and there's usually music or something, you know, going on. So exactly. <clears throat> so like fast forward you know, we kind of just continue to do like research about the industry because one of the things that we noticed and probably I would say one of the things that kind of kept us at bay from really pulling the trigger is that we just didn't see a lot of diversity in the industry. Um, and it's one of those things, just like they say, when, you know, representation really does matter because yeah. when you don't see yourself in something, then you kind of question, well, you know, is that for me or how would I even get into this? You know, and so we kind of just um, continue to, you know, continue to stay connected to it, but we're really kind of putting it, putting it off. And I think um, as we kind of got ushered into this little thing called the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that we all know and in, in, in love. <laughs> right. All of a sudden became our best friends, you know, instead of our real best friends. Um, we, you know, really, it gave us an opportunity to reevaluate a lot of things. Um, for me specifically, I had owned at that time, I had owned my own event planning business for, you know, like 13 years. And of course, because we couldn't gather, it mm. just kind of came to a screeching halt, you know? Yeah. And so it definitely freed up, you know, a little bit more time, but also piqued a little bit more curiosity. Um, I think the same, you know, for Matthew, we, we, you know, we started talking about it a lot more. We saw the landscape kind of shifting um, in the industry. We mm -hmm. started seeing a little bit more um, commitment to organizations who were advocating for bringing people of color into the industry, you know, whether it be through education or opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really kind of made us talk about a little bit more and really think, you know, hey, maybe there's something here in terms of us taking a risk and, and pivoting into um, the industry right here, right now, you know, yeah. And, um, and then, you know, and then finally, I think for us that the, the last thing that kind of gave us that additional push was just really a commitment to wanting to build a legacy for our family. Um, but that also tied back to our community. And, you know, we had two loved ones who did pass away during the, during the, uh, pandemic and, you know, both of them, that's what they were about. They were about, you know, uh, community, they were about family. They were about, you know, really living, living out your, your legacy while you're here on earth, you know? And so I think that was kind of the final little prompting for us. Like, you know what, let's do this also for them, you know, yeah. and, and for our family as well, knowing that we have two young boys who we want to see, want them to be a part of seeing how, 
you know, you can grow something if you really, you know, really put the effort and the, and the hard work and the passion into it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that, you know, you, you are one of the first, um, you are the first, I should say, winery in, in, uh, Maryland that is a black owned winery. Um, I've black family owned, black family owned, <laughs> yeah. sorry, black no, family okay. owned, um, <laughs> uh, winery like to pay homage. Cause there are other, you know, there are other, um, wine companies yes. that, that are black owned. Yes. So you're black family owned because it's a legacy too. Um, and, and putting your mark on, on, you know, such a huge industry because it is a large industry. It makes a lot of money. Like, um, you know, uh, celebrities are getting into it too. Uh, and I know, you know, in New York, there's a, there's actually a licensed liquor company that, Mm -hmm. that all they sell is black owned, um, distilleries, wineries, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I love that because, you know, it's, it's highlighting something where in an industry that is very um, washed with one, one particular um, owner, (laughs) you know, it, it it include it's, it's showing that there's inclusivity that, you know, you can, no matter who you are, where you are, what, you know, where you are in life, you can, you can go after your dreams. You can go after your goals like you guys did. So um, trying to shift that that the economics of what hasn't been very well dispersed. Right. Like the the reality is that um, there are underrepresented and, um, you know, underrepresented demographics. Right. Who have not had the ability to um, obtain certain economic statuses, right? Um yes. and 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 especially as it pertains to land ownership. And you know, and and we we are not there yet. So I want to be clear about that. <laughs> well it's funny that you said that because I was going to ask you, do you have your own vineyard or are you obtaining the grapes and, and whatnot from from other vineyards? Yeah, I'll, I, let, it takes... I'll let Matt speak to that. But yeah, no, we're still working towards that. Because <laughs> okay. I know it takes years. <laughs> uh-huh. We work with another vineyard, another grape grower. We work with to um, source our grapes for our for our wine and our production and everything. Yeah. So um, we, you know, we wanted to stay committed and stay true to um, really utilizing Maryland grapes, you know, and diving into Maryland agriculture. Um, And so, you know, we had to figure out, okay, well, how can we do that? Given that we don't have, you know, our our own vineyards yet, right? Um, It takes five years, you know, and that's at a minimum, it takes five years to grow vines, even once they have been planted, you know, yeah. as, as seedlings. So. Yeah. And, and it does take a very long time. And I give you guys a lot of accolades for the fact that you're, you're delving into this because mm-hmm. it's time consuming and, you know, arduous. So it's, yeah. you have a lot long road ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is by no means uh, um, an overnight, <laughs> overnight thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. But let's uncork one thing because I know cer- certain people are more into like your reds, certain people are more into the whites. So what what's your preferred palette? Like do are um Janelle, do you like do, do you like the sweeter dry? I think you're gonna get a different a different answer from from the both, both of, of us. You. <laughs> <laughs> so what what's your go to when uh, when you choose your wine? Um, so I re- I mean I really love. Now, are we speaking specifically about our wines? Or are we speaking wines in general? Oh no, we're gonna go right for your wines. Okay, <laughs> okay. So I really love our uh, Merlot Rosé. Like hands down, I think it was just one of. I think it was because it surprised it surprised me anyway. Um, I didn't expect for it to be um, as robust and just bright and fruit forward as it as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I've shared before that I actually was not a still rose lover when we decided to 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 make it. Like I actually enjoy sparkling rose more than I enjoy still roses. <laughs> um, I just haven't been able to find one that I loved. Like yeah. it was either too dry or too sweet, um, but just couldn't find a good mix. And so when we made ours, um, I think I was kind of like, you know how sometimes you'll just set the expectation, well, it's going to be good, but I'm not going to get overly excited because I don't want to be disappointed. (laughs) And so I kind of just went in with the expectation that I know, I, I know, I know we want it to be good, but you know, I don't know if it'll be mind blowing good. And so when, um, but when we tasted it, because we did a lot of taste tests, you know, along the way to make sure bl- uh, blending t- uh, testing, because we do a lot of blends in our wines. Um, when we tasted it, I have to be honest, I was very surprised. I was like, this is, this is really good. Um, and, you know, at first I thought, well, maybe it's just us because it is our wine. So you are a little bit, you know, partial. Tend little, <laughs> <laughs> you tend to be a, a little bit biased about your own stuff. Um, but it, but it obviously reaffirmed us when we won the medals for it. You know, we, um, best in, you know, best in gold or gold, I'm sorry, gold, best in class. Um, and then just having people really respond so well to it, um, having it sell out before we were even like through the summer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it just, I, I was blown away, you know. So um, that really was one of, one of, you know, I would say our, my favorite with a, with a, not with a nod to our living legacy red blend, but I'll, I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave that for, for Matthew. I <laughs> know uh, now you're going to speak my language as the reds. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Matthew? What's your favorite? Um, you know what? I, I would say all three are, you know, are phenomenal. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's all about you know, we, we talk about moods and moments with our wine. So it's all depends upon what mood and moment you're you're in, you know. So if, if I'm in the summertime and it's 95 degrees outside, I'm going to definitely reach for our, our community Vidal Blanc. Um, it's going to be bright. It's going to be fruit forward. It's going to be crisp. It's going to be really refreshing with no sweetness. Yeah. Um, so I love that wine in the summertime. Uh, but if I'm also, if, if it's in the evening, and it doesn't really matter any time of the year, in the evening, 
I've just put my boys to bed and it's now I'm going to have a glass of wine for, for just kind of for relaxing or I'm sitting by the fire, um, outside by the fire pit. And I just want to have a glass of wine. Um, I want to reach for our uh, Living Legacy Red Blend. Um, it's a great red wine. It's phenomenal. Um, it's, it drinks like a Pinot Noir. Um, so lots of fruit, but also lots of complexity and, and hints of tannins mm-hmm. um, because that particular wine was aged in uh, neutral French oak okay. for 12 months. So you get some of that, that little, oak. Of oak, mm-hmm. little oak on it, exactly. but we didn't want it to be too oaky because I think, you know, for, for our wines, what we were really trying to hit with when we first brought them to market in April, we really wanted them to be approachable to new wine drinkers. Mm-hmm. So like you said earlier, you know, we knew everyone wouldn't be wouldn't be an aficionado that would have our wines. So we wanted to make sure our wines were approachable for the person who's not an aficionado, but for the person who is an aficionado, and they could also enjoy, appreciate, and really enjoy the complexities of the wine as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what we're really hitting on, and I think we we you know. Personally, I would say we hit the mark out really well with those wines. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the fact that you, it sounds like you're balancing like the sweetness with the dryness and everything else Mm -hmm. so that it's, um, you know, approachable on that end as well. Because I know for me, when I get a, like, I have a friend or a, a couple of friends, I should say, that I, I've I've done a lot of wineries with. Um, and they love sweet wines, and I do not like that. Like, I have to be in the mood to have a sweet wine. Yeah. Um, and they go straight for a sweet wine. And it's so the two, the group of us together, we're just like, you know, the table has like half sweet, <laughs> half not. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like your wines are would be a, a nice medium between, like, meat like in the middle for, for you know, well, somebody. I would say our wines are, there's really no sweetness in any of our wines. Our, okay. red, is, our red is definitely a dry red. Our okay. Badal mm-hmm. and our um, and our Free Spirit Rosé, both of those wines have very little residual sugar. So you, you when you're talking about sweetness, a lot of it's a residual sugar. Mm-hmm. So our yeah. wines have like, the Living Legacy um, has almost 0.01% probably residual sugar in it. Okay. And then for the um, the the community of all, all block, maybe about zero point five percent residual sugar, and then mm-hmm. for the, the free spirit rosé, probably around the same. Um, so it sounds like I need to stock up on your wines. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the thing we did do with our wines is we wanted the fruit to speak for itself, mm-hmm. meaning we wanted the fruit and the grape to really be able to speak for itself and not take any of that away from it. So that's why we. You know, when we aged in stainless steel, we wanted that stainless steel for our uh, our, our free spirit rosé and for our community. But all we want to make sure that the fruit was maintained in that. Same with aging our living legacy in, in neutral French oak. The reason why we chose neutral French oak is we didn't want the oak to overtake the wine. We didn't yeah. want the oak to overtake the fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really thought thought that was a really great intro point because a lot of times what people don't like about reds is it's been over oaked. It's too much oak on it. The tannins kind of offend people's palate. You get mm-hmm. too much, it's too dry. Um, so we knew that we wanted to make sure that we had wines that were so approachable for people, but at the same time kind of uh, hit people from a different place. So yeah. we had so many yeah. people who have had our wines who say, oh, I'm not really a red drinker. They, they, then they have our living legacy red. They're like, oh, well, this is a really good red. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I probably don't like red. Or people who say, oh, I don't really like white wine. And then they have our community with all blind. They're like, 
oh, this is a really good wine. You know, what, you know. Yeah. So there's so, we, we just they're great bridge bridge uh, wines as well. Yeah. Like they and, help bridge yeah. bridge people. <laughs> exactly. Now I ha- I hate to interrupt the two of you, but like I motioned a couple of times, but um because we ran out of time. Um, so can oh, you let no. her? I know <laughs> this is what happens when you're having fun. Exactly. <laughs> so can you let our listeners know where to find you online and in um in person? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us at. Boyd Crew Wines, uh, and that's Boyd, B-O-Y-D, Crew, C-R-U, and Wines.com. Um, you can also find us at Boyd Crew Wines on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. So we're everywhere, Boyd Crew Wines. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. And I'm going to go get some bottles of uh, of your wine so I can have a nice Please evening. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we say with Boyd Crew Wines, we say come grow with us and come sip outside the lines of us. So we're looking forward to having you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. And stay tuned every week for a new episode of Food Farms and Chefs. To listen to the rest of Food Farms and Chefs, tune your HD radio to 97.5 WPEN HD2 or stream live from WWDBAM.com.